0: Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org.
1: Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In 2005, the High Museum of Art established the David Driscoll Prize, named after the renowned African-American artist and scholar. The first national award to honor and celebrate contributions to the field of African-American art. This year's Driscoll Prize was awarded to Adrian Childs, a scholar, curator, and art historian. Later in the hour, we'll learn about Dr. Childs' research on the relationship between race and representation in European and American art. Plus, our series of local musicians in their own words, Speaking of Music, features Tom Branch of the band Clandestination. First, a Georgia-based musician of international renown. In Homer's epic poem, The Odyssey, We follow the Greek hero Odysseus on his journey home after the Trojan War. Itamar Zorman's Violin Odyssey is a musical journey to discover rare and lesser known violin works from around the world. The internationally acclaimed violinist joins me now via Zoom Itmar Zorman, welcome back to City Lights. I'm
2: absolutely delighted to be back. Thank you for having me.
1: The repertoire on this album has far-reaching geographical origins. What are the origins of the recording itself?
2: Well, interestingly, the recording's origins were when I was confined <laughs> in my own home during the early stages of, of the pandemic. Usually uh, I travel quite a lot for for performing for, for concerts, but I, I was at home and I wanted to do, to use the time in a way that would be both interesting for me and I, and I thought oh maybe also somewhat beneficial for others. So I was looking for a way to explore the virtual concerts, possibilities but really using it in in a way that's not just imitating a live performance because that's not really the the real thing Uh, so what i did i i focused on lesson on works that's something that's always interested me and because everyone had spare time i managed to get experts uh, in this repertoire from all over the world and and talk to them and so this was a concert followed by a little talk uh with those experts and they came from china from mexico from croatia New Zealand, many different places. And somehow with time, I gathered an amount of repertoire that was sufficient for a CD. And so I said, well, I'm going to go for it and recorded the whole thing.
1: So that project before the CD, the virtual concerts with discussion afterward, that was called Hidden Gems. You mentioned Your time in lockdown, lockdown allowed an amount of time not typically available to performing artists, time for more contemplation on global issues, racial injustice, climate change. How did your time in lockdown, reflecting on issues in larger scope, inform this particular project, Dietmar?
2: I do think this was definitely a time to explore music from different cultures. And in a way, I I find that the classical music scene in, in this time has maybe made another step forward in reaching out to different cultures. You know, if you look, say, at the beginning of the 19th century we have mainly German music, right? And, and some maybe some French, but if you think of composers from that time really Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, then 19th century you see some perhaps some more, which is from Norway, from Russia, you see an expansion, but within Europe, then the 20th century you see some of the US and then maybe now we're going to see some more of music from Asia, from Africa. So this is uh, something that was on my mind somehow. And the the, um, the way these cultures connect and communicate is both fascinating and also artistically is an enormous opportunity, I find.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah. Would you tell us about the countries represented on Violin Odyssey?
2: Yes. Let's see. Yes. <laughs> there, are, there are many. It's sort of, I think there are five continents, but uh, I think that the farthest one <laughs> country is New Zealand. There's a piece by a uh, living composer his name is Gareth Farr. It's called Wakatipu, and it's uh, based basically on a Maori legend about the lake and how the way the tide rises and recedes is because of, uh, well, according to legend, it's the, the heart of a monster that lives within that lake. So there's ah. that, that piece, and it's inspired by the Gamelan. This is a sort of uh, Balinese music. There's a piece from China by composer Gao Beng, based on a traditional tune. Um, maybe uh, some things that, that we could hear, perhaps right now, from the album. Uh, there is a piece by a Polish composer. Her name is Grazina Batsewicz
1: yeah i was hoping we could talk about the music beginning with that piece it's track number one who was she
2: she was a <laughs> she was many things i'm, I'm wondering where right to start well if you go on youtube and you look and you, you search for batsevich plays batsevich you, you will hear a recording of her playing with her brother she plays the violin and you'll hear white the stunning virtuoso Virtuo- would you say virtuoso? I
3: don't
2: know. But but she's an extremely accomplished violinist she won some prizes for solo violin and she made a living as the violinist leader of the polish radio symphony orchestra but then she was also an excellent composer and wrote a lot and i think her music is definitely here to stay during the 50s she has a period where some pieces are inspired by polish folk and this is one of them so uh, you will hear it. It's like it's a very lively dance, humorous, but the accents are often hmm. on the wrong place. So it's like someone stumbles while dancing. Hmm.
1: Sounds fun, and that piece is titled "Oberak."
2: Yes, that's a, a Polish dance. Okay
1: written in 1949. Tell us about the music written in 1925 by a Russian composer Yosef Akron
2: Yes, Ahron. So one you were asking about somehow my thoughts during a lockdown, I was thankfully with my family in Athens, Georgia, and with my then two-year-old daughter. I spent a lot of time with her. So I wanted to include a piece that has something to do with children and really one of my favorite one in this sort of genre is this children's suite by Yosef Afron. He's a composer who ended up actually in, in California and in Hollywood wrote some film music. But this piece is inspired by sort of Jewish cantillation. So that's the music itself, but it portrays scenes of childhood. And the one that they thought would be nice if, if we heard is this one called Birdies, and I think the music uh, is uh, pretty self-explanatory.
1: song and the delight of children, and your delight included in recording this for your daughter. That's right. Itmar, your father, Moshe Zorman, is a composer, and you included one of his works on this recording. What is the story of Wandering?
2: Yes, Wanderings. Well, according to my my father, it was inspired by a novel by Hermann Hesse. Oh, but it was also I have a slight connection with this because it was written originally, I think, before I was born for flute, flute and piano. But then mm-hmm. uh, I played violin now, and, uh, and my father <laughs> uh, arranged it for violin and piano. especially with this you know sense of a journey and odyssey a piece named wandering it makes a lot of sense in this mix.
1: It makes a great deal of sense. What book by Hermann Hesse did your dad have in mind?
2: I would need to to ask him.
1: Okay. Uh, Yes. I'm wondering if it was Siddhartha. Hermann Hesse was very popular when I was in high school and early in college, if you were a particular kind of teenager, you know, when we used to say, he's or she's deep, (laughs) that you were reading Hermann Hesse at the time. Steppenwolf, I guess, was the most popular two among my age cohort, which is probably the same as that of your dad. Violin Odyssey takes us to sudan how did you discover afro mood by ali osman
2: so afro mood is a piece that i first heard there was a concert by the seattle symphony back quite a few years ago maybe 2017 and it was featured there i think uh, so, so i heard it and and i thought i would love to, to play it one day it's just very very humorous and it's also unique because it features violin piano i mean that's pretty traditional and tambourine ah and in this recording originally osman asks the performer the violinist to accompany themselves with a foot tempering so this is what i've I've done in in live performances in a recording setting well part of it was my own (laughs) perhaps uh lack of self-assurance in doing it well enough. But also it was really good to have a professional percussionist do this. So I had the, the wonderful Julia Thompson play the tambourine part. And the piece is just, uh, yeah, full of humor. And also what's nice about it, Ali Osman, at least in the, his earlier years, was very much interested in, in rock music. And you hear how did the instruments try to imitate perhaps other instruments. There's a, there's a section where the violin sounds like an electric, electric guitar, for example.
1: You must have fun with that. Oh, yes. We have, we had a great time with that. Getting on your Jimi Hendrix, huh?
2: Yes, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you're looking for a different sound. And this is actually what I like very much about the violin. You can get quite a variety of colors. That if you try to imitate another instrument, it's not going to sound 100%, of course, but you can evoke the, the spirit of, say, <laughs> Jimi
1: Hendrix. Very cool. If you are just tuning in... This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitz, speaking with Israeli American violinist Itamar Zorman, and we're discussing his new album, Violin Odyssey. Czech composer Erwin Schulhoff wrote his second violin sonata in 1927. You've included that piece? Yes. What distinguishes this music?
2: Well, for me, this really is a masterpiece. Schuchoff was, you know, sometimes sometimes people ask this question, you know, if you wanted to go out for, say, for, for a drink with a certain famous composer of the past, who would that be? I mean, I think he would be one of the people I would like to, to go with on a drink because he was such an eclectic figure. Earlier in his life, he wrote the sort of music sort of in, in a romantic tradition then he was inspired by the dada movement Dadaism. so he wrote for example he wrote a, a piece called Infoturum for piano which is completely silent and this is i think 30 or more years before john cage oh and the wow. store is full of sort of irrational meters smiley faces it, it's really all over the place He has a piece called Sonata Erotica, which is perhaps what you can imagine.
1: Yes. Screeching on that piece, right? Yes.
2: So he has that face. And then in the 20s, that's where the sonata comes from. He's both interested in jazz. He wrote a lot of jazz-inspired pieces and some maybe folk music. And this is where this piece comes in, and I think it's just phenomenal lady. He was really interested in socialism. He even uh, composed music for the Communist Manifesto. I mean, he was really... um, fascinating figure but also an immense talent and I think if you hear this this piece this second sonata for violin and piano I, I think it's quite evident hmm.
1: William Grant still lived in the 20th century he was often referred to as the dean of African American composers why did you want to include still's Summerland and Violin Odyssey
2: because well i think it's it's just the the perfect way to end an album right? i mean this this piece so summerland it refers to uh, it's sort of a vision of the afterlife i guess It's just really is a, a touching piece of music. It also has a distinct American flavor to it. And, you know, the, this is where I am right now. I, I thought it was appropriate to, to end this journey where I currently am. And it's always, you know, uh, in concerts, it's a perfect, say, encore piece. And it's just a way to, to end with a smile, a tear, and, and just in, in thoughts, maybe, of what, what has happened. That, that's my, mm. my hope.
1: Itmar, you mentioned where you live now. You and your wife and little girl live in Athens, Georgia. Your wife is on the faculty. She's a distinguished faculty member at the University of Georgia's School of Music. You have two of the most coveted prizes. In all of music. In 2011, you won the Tchaikovsky International Competition. Not long after that, you were the recipient of an Avery Fisher Award. And here you are in our midst. What is it like living, I don't want to say off the grid, but Not in Brooklyn, not in Berlin, (laughs) not in Vienna. Do you enjoy living in Georgia, in an area not far from Atlanta?
2: Yes, very much. We found uh, a wonderful community here, which is really uh, probably the most important thing. We have friends that we cherish quite a lot. Uh, in essence, and, and in the area in general, also in Atlanta. You were asking before a little bit what, as we were in lockdown, what what were some of perhaps the, the thoughts that have come up about things in the world? And, and I think one of them was really the sense of belonging to a local community since travel was not possible. And I, I think we really, uh, during that time, we really connected more uh, you know, st- thanks to our daughter, we, we know now all the children in our neighborhood. And uh, we also I did a series of concerts outdoors with support from the um, Essence Area Art Council, just uh, playing for the community. And this is something I would like to, to do more. I think some things on, on a more local scale, I guess, really being a part. This is maybe... The time to mention that also both of my pianists, they might not be in Georgia, but they both live nearby in North Carolina. Kwan Yi and Yevla that they both teach in universities in North Carolina. So it's been, in a way, quite convenient for me to have them nearby and we can rehearse and record.
1: You are just a full-fledged southerner, Itmar.
2: <laughs> I guess.
1: Well, it is an honor to have you And your family in our area. And thank you for taking us on your violin odyssey.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Internationally renowned violinist Itamar Zorman. His new album is Violin Odyssey. More information is on our website, wabe.org. Org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my conversation with this year's Driscoll Prize winner, Adrian L. Childs. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE.
0: You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we.
1: This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for joining us. In May, the annual David Driscoll Prize was awarded to the renowned curator, scholar, and art historian Adrian L. Childs. The prize honors and celebrates an artist or art scholar who contributed to the field of African American art. Throughout her career, Dr. Childs has focused her research on the relationship between race and representation in European and American art. Let's listen back to my conversation with Dr. Childs. Here, she talks about her initial reaction to receiving the award. I was
4: very surprised and delighted and a bit melancholy because David Driscoll will not be here to share this moment with me. I think mixed emotions is what I would say, but I was very surprised because the, the Driscoll Prize has been something I've known about for many years. It's almost 20 years since they started this prize. And I always think of the people who win it as being so prominent and and visible. And and sometimes you just don't think of yourself in that way.
1: Well, you are in that pantheon now. (laughs) You earned both your master's in art history and Ph.D. at the University of Maryland, where Professor Driscoll taught for many years. Did you study with him?
4: He was a mentor to me. When I came in, he really wasn't teaching as much, but he did sit on my dissertation committee. But I studied with him in that I worked with him as a student and as a professional when I finished. I curated exhibitions of his work. I curated uh, or helped in the curation of an exhibition of his collection. And so in that way, I learned a tremendous amount from him. I think even more so than had we been in the classroom.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I thought you seemed young to have been in the classroom with him. You've spent most of your career examining the ways in which race is represented in both American and European art. Can you give us some examples of your research discoveries that have been most outstanding or even surprising to you?
4: <laughs> oh, that's an interesting question. Hmm. Well, when I first started looking into images of Black women, I think it was, I started out looking at images of Black women in European art when I was studying at the University of Maryland. One thing that was surprising to me was very few people were writing about that. I would find many images in books uh, by important artists. There was a uh, sort of a silence, an elephant in the room, if you will, about why Black women were depicted and how and what did that have to do with sort of the history of colonialism and slavery. So that was always surprising to me. And in terms of discoveries, that's, that's interesting too. Right now I'm writing, I'm thinking a lot about decorative arts. That's one of the avenues I started pursuing in terms of this image of black figures in European material and visual culture. And I'm surprised to find that um, many of these sort of luxury objects that you might find in a, you know an English manor home or, or a very uh, Parisian you know mansion were owned by people who really really did have true links to slaves, slave culture, the Black Atlantic, that were really um, making their fortunes off the labor of enslaved Africans. And when I started looking into these objects, I never expected to be able to find, if you will, a smoking gun or these links. And you you don't really necessarily try to find that, but I was very surprised to find that some of the objects that I'm studying are parts of collections that were built I guess, with the wealth that was gained by these enslaved bodies in real life. And then they find enslaved figures in their homes <laughs> under lamps and under tables. It's oh. really interesting. And, and it's distressing as well.
1: Oh, it's terribly disturbing. And I should note for listeners, your forthcoming book is Ornamental Blackness. The Black Figure in European Decorative Arts, which you're speaking about now. As recently as 15 years ago, my husband and I were in Vienna. He had a professional meeting, and we were staying at a very fine hotel. And I just gasped to see one of those lamps you're describing. And yet, I guess you're saying we can still find these ornamental pieces in European venues today.
4: Oh, yes, and in American museums and in American historic homes. But it was fashionable in the 18th and 19th century to have one of these objects, and they were considered exotic. And they're linked to Black labor although apparent then and now, was sort of mitigated by their, sometimes they were one of a kind. At one point, certainly the earlier ones were made of precious materials. And so their status as luxury objects kind of shrouded, if you will, these links to the disturbing history of Black labor. And now they are relics from a time gone by. Uh, What's interesting is they start getting reproduced even more, and and I guess a little bit more kitschy, if you will, as they start coming out of Venice in the late 18th and 19th century. But Americans coming to Europe wanting to mimic European grandeur would purchase them as well. So you find them in American homes. So I think it's even more interesting to think about what what, how they may have operated in an American home in the South before the Civil War, that kind of thing. So it's, a, it's an interesting topic. And it kind of dovetails to a certain extent with my study of African-American art, because sometimes these things are objects are reacted to by particularly contemporary black artists like Fred Wilson, if you will. There's a chandelier at the High Museum by Fred Wilson. It's a black chandelier made of Murano glass. So it's a Venetian product. And so I think a lot of this interest in the decorative and and these underbelly of European representation is what Fred Wilson tries to think about in his very conceptual chandelier. But the black um, glass is, is, is in some ways linked to those histories of representation that I study on both sides. So there are lots of links between African-American art and the way Africans have been represented in European art, particularly, like I said, with with, uh, contemporary artists who look back and try to come to terms with or resist those narratives.
1: Yeah, because how can you come to terms with the inhumanity of it, no matter how fine the materials? right? If you are just tuning in, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with the 2022 David Driscoll Prize winner, Dr. Adrian L. Childs. You are an associate of the W.E.B. Du Bois Research Institute. Harvard University, as well as an adjunct curator for the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. How has your research informed your role as a curator?
4: Hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting. I did an exhibition for the Phillips that opened in 2020, February. Hmm. That exhibition was called Rifts and Relations, African-American Artists and the European Modernist Tradition. And in that exhibition, I looked at both this European tradition of representing Black figures and certainly European modernism writ large, its debt to African art, and how African-American artists reacted to that very powerful force of modernism in the 20th century. So that kind of brought those, my research together. And it was a lot of fun putting it together. I had a wonderful, the staff at the Phillips was terrific. This was before I came and became an adjunct curator. And it's really a group project, put together a very interesting show that was really on display for two glorious weeks (laughs) until uh, the COVID shut us down after about three years of, of planning and coordination research. But they were able to Reopen toward the end of the year in a limited fashion, but having said that, it was a really interesting project. I've received, I've lectured on it quite a bit. I'm still getting asked to lecture on it because it does bring together these stories that art historians tell tell themselves and tell, and 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 looks at it in a uh, with a different lens.
3: Mm.
1: So you talked about curating different Driscoll exhibitions. You were a curator at the David Driscoll Center at the University of Maryland for several years, and your work there was extensive. Yes. Given Professor Driscoll's legacy and presence at the university, what can you tell us about curating evolution, five decades of printmaking by David Driscoll?
4: Well, that was a special project for me. I was asked to give a paper one year at the Porter Colloquium at Howard, which is probably the longest standing conference, yearly conference or symposium, if you will, on African-American art named after James Porter, who was Driscoll's mentor when he was in at Howard University. So this is a real legacy there. Anyway, I was I gave a paper there just like anybody else, and I focused on Driscoll's prints when I finished my dissertation, one of the things that, and I got hired at the Driscoll Center, one of the things that the current director asked was, let's, let's look at that, that material and develop into a, an exhibition. And so I worked on that with David Driscoll in his studio where there were many, 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 many prints. <laughs> and we just had a really great time, again, working with the artist and someone who's an art historian and putting together the exhibition. And I had a great lesson on printmaking and all the different forms of printmaking. And of course, Driscoll was a printmaker. I mean, primarily, Driscoll was primarily a painter and a collages and he didn't even realize how many prints he had done over the years and many prints he would execute, tear them up and put them in his finished collages. So oh. the, he has a long and extensive history in printmaking that he, he was wondering, well, how are we going to do an exhibition? And we had more than we could even handle. So it was a great learning experience for me to learn about, uh, and he would print with anything, you know, stick something together, two things together, and then boom, run a piece of paper over and then there's a print. So <laughs> we had a good time looking back at that legacy in his life.
1: How special that must have been for you. Since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement and our reckoning with racial injustice in 2020, have you noticed an impact in the art world, whether increased attention to museum exhibitions or greater focus on Black artists?
4: Without a doubt. I started feeling it personally in my own career because I was getting many, many requests to speak on projects of mine, to speak on my book in progress, getting requests to co-curate, to curate, to contribute an essay, and uh, many institutions that I'd never heard from before, So I'm thinking that many institutions are looking for Black voices, Black curators in ways that they hadn't done before. Yeah, it was really good. It also took a lot of time away from my focusing on my book, but I I felt like I wanted to participate in this flowering, if you will, of consciousness, and I wanted to have my voice heard as well. So I did say yes to a lot of requests. So I noticed that in my own career. I also notice, of course, the increase in interest in Black artists in in terms of the art market. And that impacts the um, museum community as well. There's an inverse or relate, I don't even know if I would call it inverse. There's a relationship, a symbiotic relationship between the market and the museum. And it's interesting to see how that is going and it continues to flourish in many ways. So I think it's all in all very good. I always am very cautious. I wonder, is it a bubble? Will, will the bubble burst? Or is this just a very visible correction that will sort itself out, uh, but not necessarily a bubble? So we shall see how it all turns out.
1: Well, let's hope it's not a bubble. Yes. And it is a long overdue correction. Sadly, in April of 2020, David Driscoll died from COVID-19. In 1977, he said, we don't go around saying white art, but I think it's very important for us to keep saying black art until it becomes recognized as American art. Do you think that goal has been achieved? And it's complicated to separate because we certainly should take full pride in this body of work as American art. There's also something very specific to its creation and creators. Where do you think we are in terms of what David Driscoll said?
4: Oh, that is the question of the hour, or the, the decade, let's say. I think that, in many ways, the artists, the contemporary artists, many of them are young, who are out there working in the field now are driving that story, because uh, many of them want to claim Black art, or African American art, or many different ways of, of putting it, but making sure that Blackness is forefronted in how their art is categorized or conceived or consumed because of the subject matter, because of the assertive nature, let's to say, of their attention to blackness and how race impacts their life, American life. I mean, there are many ways of looking at it. Certainly, identity is is an important aspect of what many of them are doing. So they're saying, no, 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 it does matter. (laughs) I don't think we've gotten to the point where there's such a thing as being colorblind in terms of art. Now, there are many artists whose work does not rally around racial issues, but they are Black artists, but their work might be focused on form, color, line, some other kind of concept. And the the freedom to be able to do that without having to account for your Blackness is very important to them. So it is a complicated situation. And it's interesting now that we're moving to the term Black art. We moved away from that to African-American art. (laughs) And when I taught these courses on the subject matter, I called my course art by African-Americans instead of African-American art, because I felt like the, that art itself, the objects, whatever they are now, they're not necessarily even objects anymore, but art itself is, is not raced. It might reflect race. Race might be the subject matter. It might not, but in the end, it's whatever materials are being put together. The person who's making it, however, let the stories that i tell in class are about how black artists have navigated this scene uh, the art world over the last two you know two centuries and uh, what does that mean it is a complicated thing and i i'd hate to limit it or reduce it down to black art white art
1: scholar art historian and curator adrian l childs she is the recipient of this year's David Driscoll Prize. Coming up in a moment, we'll hear from Atlanta musician Tom Branch of the band Clandestination. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for joining me. It's time now for our segment Speaking of Music, our series of local musicians in their own words.
0: Hi, I'm Tom Branch, and you're listening to my group called Clandestination. I play acoustic guitar together with Tim Anderson on cello, Teresa Lemire on flute, and Colin Agnew on percussion. We play a kind of music that I hope takes you on a little bit of a journey. There are no lyrics to any of these pieces, but I hope they convey at least some sort of emotion, hopefully take you somewhere. In, in my house, there was music all the time. My mom and dad both sang. They played records all the time, every day. Anything you could think of, from the Hair soundtrack to uh, the, the Four Freshmen and anything in between, Miles Davis, Dave Brubeck. There's a lot of stuff coming and going. When I was 15, my dad got me an acoustic guitar. I immediately started writing songs on it. Most of them were really awful and I hope that I've gotten a little better since then. I'm an Atlanta native. I've lived here my whole life. My dad is born and raised Atlanta as well, and so is his dad. Uh, And the cycle continues with me because my son is an Atlantan as well. He just finished school at Midtown High School and is about to go off to Georgia State for college. With that said, I can't help but be influenced by Atlanta. It's an interesting mix of all kinds of different stuff, all sorts of different people, all sorts of different cultures, but it's also pretty laid back. It's a friendly vibe here. I feel really lucky to be an Atlantan and I love it here. places i like to go to hear music are the earl in east atlanta smith's old bar in in midtown and to me the best venue in the whole southeast probably is the variety playhouse in little five points a lot of great shows there it's one of my favorite places to go none of the pieces of music that you're listening to have lyrics but They're all based on some sort of a story, something I've got going on in my mind, something I think of that inspired me to to write the music. It's almost like I'm writing a little soundtrack to a movie that doesn't exist. This song, All I've Got to Hang On To, was inspired by a a guitar riff that I'd had for years and years, but was never able to, to finish it, never able to complete it, never able to make a full piece of music out of it. A few years ago, there was a a member of our local music community who was killed in just a random, completely senseless, awful way. And um, something about that made me sit down with this guitar and finish this piece of work off. Life can be short. It can disappear at any second. And if I've got something that I want to try and do, something I want to complete, I best do it and that's how this piece of music finally got finished I've been playing music in Atlanta for a really long time. If you remember the late 80s to early 90s, a band called Insane Jane, that was my band. Uh, And I've been in multiple bands since then. Most of the bands I've played in have been rock bands or punk bands or alternative rock bands. I really look forward to taking uh, my acoustic guitar, the cello, the flute, and some percussion out into a club at some point and playing some of this music and getting the feedback from what an audience might think of it because I really don't have any idea how this music <laughs> is received by folks.
1: That was Tom Branch of the band Clandestination. You can find out more information about the band and our Speaking of Music series at wabe.org. World-renowned Mexican sculptor Jorge Marín has a new exhibition in Brookhaven. Wings of the City is comprised of nine bronze sculptures displayed in different locations throughout the historic neighborhood. The exhibition was created in partnership with the Brookhaven Arts and Culture Commission and the Consulate General of Mexico in Atlanta. The sculptures are large-scale winged creatures or human figures combined with geometric shapes. Some include bird-like features perched on top of
3: spheres.
1: Marin says he was inspired by his need to communicate and to communicate what he thinks, feels, and lives, as well as his fears, anxieties, ideals, and phobias. His work has been featured in over 300 collective and individual exhibitions worldwide. The sculptures will be on display through April of 2023. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture, Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the annual Summer Shade Festival in Grant Park. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews, so... You can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drogues. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Knavey. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at W-A-B-E City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta.